Welcome to the podcast on music, art and culture. I'm your host, Matthe de Bruin. Music and art grasp me, and in this podcast series, I try to find out why. To explore this fascination, I have conversations with guests from the world of creativity to investigate what drives us. What is it that keeps us coming back to the arts? This episode's guest is the owner of Co and Response Records, a Tokyo-based indie label that specializes in Japanese underground music. He is a Tokyo-based writer and author of the book Quit Your Band, in which he shines light on the Japanese underground music scene in which he partakes, besides owning a record label, as an organizer and DJ. I'm really happy to talk to him on what being indie, underground and geographical location mean for the scene and the music. Welcome, Ian F. Martin. Hi, thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. I was excited to talk to you because of um, we have met before. Right, yeah. And, uh, well, we've met actually after I read your book. And I can't, can't really recall how I met your, uh, found your book. <laughs> I was really curious about the Tokyo underground scene because for me, as a European, the to- Tokyo and underground had a, a sort of a mystical attraction to me. So that's why I picked up your book in the first place. So, and I was wondering, how did you get involved? Um, my involvement was, uh, I don't know, when I first moved to Japan, I didn't really know what I was doing here. So I was, I was just working as a, just doing some kind of English teaching gig. And then I just decided I, I was going to start checking out some shows, trying to find some bands. Basically, it was bands I'd already heard of, mm. you know, foreign bands who were coming over or um, Japanese bands that I'd heard of from like my life back in the UK, which isn't that many bands, you know. I mean, at that yeah. time, I'd, I knew like Melt Banana, Shonen Knife, Cornelius, boredoms, almost nothing beyond that, really. Mm. Um, But maybe a few other bands I'd heard of slightly. Um, But actually, getting from that to the actual day-to-day kind of indie underground music scene in Tokyo, it's not easy or obvious, you know, the passage you have to take. those kinds of, well, those kinds of bands, they're playing at venues like, um, well, at that time, at least, they would have all, uh, well, foreign bands are always playing at places like Liquid Room or at, like, um, uh, Club Quattro, those yeah, kinds of venues. Houses. Yeah, places with a capacity of, you know, several hundred, a thousand, whatever. Mm. Um, yeah, the Japanese bands were maybe playing in smaller places, but I didn't know that. Um, oh. So it was only, I guess I I saw Shonen Knife playing at this um, a, a show at Club Quattro that they'd put on. I guess a kind of anniversary event, and one of the the opening acts were just really quite striking for me. They didn't really seem like they knew what they were doing, but what they were doing was very interesting. And so I started following that band. Uh, they were called the Students. Um, they don't exist anymore. Um, but they, they were a kind of, they were a fascinating, uh, fascinating band for me. And more than that, it was following them to their other shows, tiny little venues in like out of the way places. Uh, um, so that's what brought me into contact with the, the actual, the music scene as I understand it now. 
and you know following them and then just if they played with any other interesting bands maybe following those bands as well that kind of thing yeah yeah i get it and do uh, do you think they were actually not knowing what they were doing or was it an act or was it a happy accident or did this just stumble upon greatness <laughs> um I think some of the awkwardness of their performance was, I'm not going to say intentional, but they kind of, they'd lean into some of their awkwardness. Mm. Mm. You know, they were uh, at least a, a bit self-aware of how how weird they were in places. They, you know, they'd always, they'd do a thing where um, the, um, you know, when the band stops and like talks to the audience for a little while, which, um, everyone in Japan seems to yeah, it's a must. sort of insist that they, yeah. they have to do. Um, it's called MC. Yes, when they do reason. the MC, yeah. they'd, um, the bass player would, you know, step up and, and talk. But the whole time he was talking, the drummer would like stand up and just stand there, not moving, staring right ahead of him. And you're like, what's, what's he doing? Is he going to speak? What's he doing? And then after the MC finished, the drummer would just sit down and then they'd carry on playing. <laughs> or, you know, they'd do things like that. They they knew that there was something a bit odd about them. And, um, but other bits, you know, they just, they weren't very good. <laughs> they weren't very tight, really. Mm. Um, musically, there was a lot of things they're doing. We like, was that, is they, are they being avant-garde or is that a mistake? Mm. But the songs were amazing. They, and they came from really weird places. You know, they would... Um, really catchy stuff. I, I mean, I, I made a... Um, I, tr I went through all of the old CDRs I had of them and I kind of threw them together into a um, a Bandcamp album, like sometime after the book came out, because I know I talk about them in the book, but there's yeah. nothing of them online. So I, I made the... I made all of their stuff available online. Are you in touch with the guys? I don't know if they I have their... You? They... They know that, yeah, we were friends, you know. Okay. If the same weird foreigner keeps showing up to your gigs, <laughs> people are going to recognize you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I um, mailed the singer and asked for her permission to put the music up online and things. I, I didn't do that. <laughs> um, sort of completely off my own back. No, no, I, I see. So, um, I, uh, in preparation of this, I checked uh, all your social media. And uh, in the header of, uh, I think it is Instagram, the uh, word weird drops. And uh, that's interesting because uh, when my European friends ask me about Tokyo, um, they always, uh, that's the, one of the first words they bring up. It's weird, isn't it? And I'm like, well, no. Um, <laughs> but yeah, maybe, M maybe it is anyways. Um, yeah. The the but the Japanese underground scene is definitely known for its weird. Yeah, I mean there's a sort of cliche of weird Japan and there's a, a kind of um like a way that the western media likes to portray Japan is always through this lens of oh it's this weird place. It's uh, um and I think that on some level 
the Japanese like to be portrayed as weird, or at least they like to think of themselves as being kind of impossible to understand for foreign mm. eyes as well. And so maybe they, there's some kind of mutually beneficial uh, aspect to this, to this way of portraying, this way that Japan's portrayed. Um, I don't know why I use the word weird in my Instagram profile there. I think that probably Double if check. I'm... Because, well, if I'm saying that, it's probably because, like, the stuff that we're doing is oh, yeah. odd even by, Jap is odd so by Japanese standards. A, your, your record label says, Call and Response is a Tokyo-based label specializing in post-punk, indie rock and weird pop. Uh, yeah, okay, well, that's just... I, I don't really want people sending me pop records uh, in there. <laughs> I don't want people kind of emailing me saying, hey, I put out this, like, pop record i'm really influenced by like coldplay and blah blah yeah. blah it's like we'll put you know we'll put out or we'll kind of promote something that i consider pop but it's never going to be pop pop you yeah, know it's not straight up that's i think why i said that it, but I it mean, seems to be in a theme in the underground right uh, in in japanese underground to be not straight like not straight up what we consider in the west to be normal it's it's deviating from Western standards. Well, look at it another way, though. If you're into underground music in the first place, aren't you already marking yourself as being weird, you know? The weirdos were the kids who were, who were into the... Um, you know, they weren't listening to the music that all the normal kids at school were listening to. They were listening yeah. to the weird stuff, right? So just by being into underground music in the first place, you're you're entering that world, you're kind of, or you're marking yourself as being part of that, this, a weird world rather than the, mm. the mainstream one. Um, I, I think getting to grips with the weirdness of Japan specifically, it's difficult, especially when you've been in, in it for a long time. Do you think uh, after being there for a long time that it's weirder or more normal? Um, that's a difficult question, because the more you... Yeah, I mean, the, the deeper you're into it, the less you know what's weird and what isn't, don't you? Mm. Um, I think that the things that... All right, the things that seem... that often seem very strange, or that, that are kind of explicitly weird to foreigners, right? So, for example, stuff like the robot restaurant or something. Yeah, but that's ex ex explicitly weird for Japanese people as well. Well, that's that's true. It's something that kind of markets itself on its weirdness. Yeah. And that that's, that becomes kind of banal <laughs> after a mm. while. Yeah. Um, real, real weirdness, or I, I don't know, it's like what the, what the Germans call like Unheimlichkeit or something, you know, mm. the, the, the scent, the eerie, that, yeah. the things that it's the stuff that's almost that's like a subtle deviation from from the familiar yeah, um, I, I guess that might be related to the fact that in japan japanese culture it's not done to um what we do in the netherlands just name everything on its specifics so you leave the specifics out and you leave the details <laughs> open and you can infer the details everybody understands what you mean but it's not straight up set right I um, feel so so mm. I think such and such it comes across to me as such and such people don't say that they mm. just say well maybe it's a bit like 
or I could imagine that it would be like right there's a okay so yeah there's a sort of studied ambiguity that's yeah. uh, um, so uh, I mean which serves as a social function of mm. um, allowing differences to kind of flow by smoothly you know yeah. without causing uh, without causing friction um, whereas I you know I I understand that you know, having occasionally worked with uh, Dutch people, that's mm. the opposite of how Dutch culture yeah, yeah, um, yeah. treats differences. Where you know, we just like to point them out. Just yes, like, you are like that, and I'm like that. That's our difference. And you, you shake hands with that. Okay, great. Now we know our difference. We can work. <laughs> yeah, we are. Uh, we are not afraid of. It's not in in the Netherlands. It's not considered confrontation, but we're not afraid of uh, uh, putting difficult things into words. Mm. That's something that we like to do and makes makes us feel secure. Right. But then how how, how does that how is that reflected in culture then? Um, for like for especially in pop culture. Uh, I think that's in order to bring it well around I, to I think Dutch pop pop culture is definitely banal. Because right. there, is a, there are a few reasons for that. Because um, there, the uh, amount of people that speak Dutch are very limited. Mm. It's, it's 17 million Dutch people and a bunch of Belgians. Mm. And maybe some South Africans that have no interest in it. Because, <laughs> but they could sort of understand it. And um, so the domestic market is very small. Which means... Um, uh, the, the pool of talent you pull from is small and the uh, support for it, uh, for possible talent is small. So, uh, which works f well enough for a small mainstream because, I don't know, 70 million people in your mainstream is still big. But the underground is marginalized mm. because of that, because they're just not, there's not enough of it to mm. sustain itself. And that's a massive difference between Tokyo because not only is Tokyo uh, 17 million people on its own, uh, the greater Tokyo, it's also um, the biggest hub of uh, 35 million people. Mm. And for, for me, there, there are two uh, factors that I found that uh, determine how vibrant a hub is. First mm. of all, how big the hub is, so people count. So there's a big, uh, there are a lot of people here. And also, um, where you are as a hub relatively to other hubs. So Tokyo is right. the main hub of not only the country, of the island. Right. And um, uh, that, that makes it um, the point where everything is going in this part of the... Right, it has a, there's a sort of cultural gravity yeah. that sort of... Um, like sure. the Tokyo's cultural gravity well, I think, sort of extends... About halfway into Saitama Prefecture, I think, yeah. and then um, certainly deep into Chiba, and then quite yeah, quite a long way into Kanagawa Prefecture as well. So I also, think that's yeah. roughly where you get that thirty-five million figure from. I mean, I, I noticed that once you get a bit further outside Tokyo, about as far as Kumagaya in. Um, how long is that by train? Kumagaya in Saitama is, God, what, like maybe one and a half hours by train? Okay. Then you start getting a local scene again. I mean, mm. certainly those bands, bands from around there, um, the they Dokko. might still be going into Tokyo to okay. play shows, but 
there starts being another sort of music scene around there, around like Kumagaya and Saitama Prefecture, about around Takasaki and Gumma, and then some of some of the nearby places that that is able to support something. Mm. Um, and yeah, and it's it's definitely difficult to think of another city in Japan that that has quite that. I mean, like Fukuoka, actually, maybe even though Fukuoka is nowhere near as big as Tokyo, there's just nothing else near it yeah, of right. even remotely comparable size. So, like, I think you know, historically, Fukuoka kind of punches a bit above its weight, mm. sort of in terms of the music and culture it produces for that reason. Those are interesting um, places to be in as mm. a creator because um, you, your work has disproportionate amount of influence. Mm. Or is it a trap? Do you not get out? If you're in a place like that. Well, I mean, the pro I, actually in a place like Fukuoka, it's it's big enough. There's enough going on there that it's it's easy to get lost in much the same way as in Tokyo. I think in certainly in like smaller cities of about three hundred and fifty thousand, one person can have a huge influence there. Mm. Definitely, um, but you've got to be very self motivated because you're not going to find a lot of other people around you to kind of. To sort of feed you, to refuel you creatively in quite the same way that you might um, in a place where you can have a community around you. Mm. I mean, this go goes back to what you were saying earlier about the size of Tokyo as well, right? Yeah. And and weirdness. The, yeah. um, the size of Tokyo allows you to be weird because you can find enough other similarly weird, another yeah, people yeah. who are weird in the same way as you, that you can create this... You can feel like you matter. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, I get it. Um, so you have to be pretty um, unique mm. to be um, peerless in Tokyo, I guess. That's, I mean, that's the challenge, isn't it? Yeah. But on the on the flip side of that is that you can feel comfortable and at home. You can find people that you can feel like you're at home with there. So do you think Tokyo, like, if if we look at it as a sort of Laboratory, uh, laboratory from upside, uh, from above. Is Tokyo a place where people try to differentiate differentiate themselves or find like-minded people, predominantly? Well, you know, it's it's massive. So, but like both of those things are are happening. Mm. It's um, if you if you're really ambitious, then you have to be in Tokyo, right? But at the same time, if, if you imagine if you're uh, you know some lonely kid in a small town, he goes to high school in some small town mm. in like, I don't know, let's say in like Nagano or somewhere or in uh, Tochigi prefecture. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're really, you're like the only kid in your school who's like really into the Velvet Underground or something. Yeah. You go to Tokyo, you can, there's going to be loads of people who are into that kind of stuff with you, yeah. you know, you're gonna, um, you're gonna be able to meet people that you'd never meet if you stayed in your hometown. And so, inevitably, like the same reason that uh, um, places like New York or London attract so many people to them, it's people go there to uh, to find other people like them. Yeah. So yeah. All right. So and you, you talked before about. Um um, how Japanese culture is uh, enabling difference, differences to flow together easily. 
and uh, um, I'm, I wonder if that's um, if the, if if that's a factor that's necessary to create a city as big as this, where everybody is looking for like-minded people and never minding the other people. Hmm. That's a it's an interesting question. Um, how do you how do you get by? Yeah, I mean, inevitably, I suppose you have to. Yeah, I mean, pe people. People don't really talk about the things that make them stand out, I guess. Mm. I mean, there's an element of Japanese culture where it's like you... You try to present yourself in a way... You don't try to present yourself as being unusual or outstanding in any way. I don't know if that's like particularly a feature of uh, life in Tokyo, but I can, I can certainly imagine how that that will help you in, in those moments where you have to interact with people from outside of your um, your little layer of society that you're in, then I can see that that would, that might help kind of smooth things. You know, it's I, I always dread it when somebody asks me, you know, if somebody that I work with or something says, you're, uh, oh, I heard that you're, involved in music, what kind of music are you into? I always just think, oh God, I don't want to have to answer this question. I do not want to have this conversation. Because you know that person's expecting you to say, you know, they're waiting so that they can say, I really like the Beatles and Eric Clapton. And I have to be like, I don't really care about either of those bands, yeah, <laughs> either yeah. of those people, you know. So, yeah, you kind of, you try to go through life appearing as unexceptional as possible. Well, you know, you th there's a little negotiation that's always going on when you're talking with somebody so that you know if it's safe to introduce this piece of information about yeah. yourself. Um, you're, you're kind of watching little signals, you're watching the clothes they're wearing, you're watching just little remarks they make about a movie they saw recently. Yeah. Or... Um, you know, if you're into the music scene, then watching their T-shirts is like super helpful. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, or are they wearing vintage fashion? Or right, exactly. <laughs> you, what kind of shoes are this, is this person wearing? You know. Yeah. So that, <laughs> um, basically, you're, you're trying to gear them up, uh, whether or not they might be sort of in the same layer of society. As yeah, you exactly. Yeah. So um, Tokyo being uh, so big and therefore so layered, what does that mean to the uh, the music that's being made in Tokyo? Like, so the music scene here is very fragmented. Mm. Um, I think you, you've been to shows here, you, mm. you've probably seen this to some extent. Um, if you're into, if you're a garage rock band, chances are that you play all of your gigs with only other garage rock bands and you never really experience, um, you never really play shows with it different mm. kinds of music, maybe punk bands, you know, there's some crossover around the fringes. Um, you know, if you're an idol group, most of your shows are going to be with other idol groups. Again, sometimes it won't be, sometimes someone's going to try to mix something up. It can be interesting when it does, but generally speaking, Have everything... Have you seen it work, audience-wise? I mean, there was a period a few years ago, and I don't see it so much now, where punk events were often booking idol groups at them, 
Okay. Um, they'd like throw together all kinds of stuff because there's a, a lot of things around the fringes of the punk scene that are quite colourful or extreme in various mm. ways. And I think there were a lot of things happening around the fringes of the idol scene where they were um, playing at least with the aesthetics of certain kind of underground music cultures. Mm. And yeah, I remember. That was all kind of... That would come together. And sometimes those events would be sort of fun. I don't... I didn't go to a lot of them and I don't... They never really left a strong lasting impact on me but um you know maybe if i'd sort of discovered that when i was a lot younger then maybe i'd have been oh yeah but i mean basically idol music's garbage and i don't care who disagrees with me about that it's just all fucking garbage so um how come I don't know, it's just shitty music. <laughs> um, I don't know, I mean, I, th there's a lot of groups out there who, they, they, they'll try to bring in, like, indie producers from, like, one genre or another and things, but somehow it always ends up just sounding like the same, following the same kind of J-pop chord progressions and the, um, uh, the way the vocals are treated always ends up kind of sounding more or less the same every time, and it's just an aesthetic that I'm not. Um, yeah, but I I'm thought it was super into. I, I thought part of that was uh, everybody having the same producer or production house. Even when you get, and I think in Visual K that's a big thing because yeah, everybody has the same production house in the end. But I think there are certain kind of um, songwriting tropes that are common to J-pop, and that doesn't matter what kind of back musical background you're coming from. Once you think you're writing a pop song, you start falling into those sort of tropes. Yeah. In, um, if you're a Japanese formula. person. Yeah, I mean, if you, might, you're a Westerner, then you're the going... the West, I think. Yeah, they have, the West has its own Definitely formulas. Yeah. The mainstream West, or if you... Yeah, I don't know. Like, if you start, if you start a punk pop band, it's impossible to not be cliché. Yeah. As, I don't know how to be not cliche and punk pop at the same time. Yeah, they... That's a hard. It's formulated genre. Yeah, but it's... I mean, yeah, it's, everything's like major chord and you're using the same kind of four chords. I mean, p punk is fundamentally... You know, punk generally tends to sort of stick to fairly sort of simple uh, formulas like that. But, um, yeah, anyway, it's just that the... Um, so apparently you, you start out by saying, well, it's the uh, underground is very fragmented. And then we started talking about how um, sort of the commercial side of the underground, uh, like uh, Idols and Visual K is also really, there are also islands in this whole music landscape. So well, is it all islands or is it just... Well, uh, um, up to, uh, until you get to the point where you're sort of breaking through into the mainstream, in which case, at that point, everything sort of starts to flow together. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, one, if you're getting to that point, there's a process of, um, uh, what would you call it, kind of homogenization that sort of happens, and um, you'll find different arrangements of basically what sounds the same to me. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I, I get what you mean. You know, it's like, you, it will be a J-pop song filtered through a sort of, you know, like a, a group like, what's their name? Um, they got really popular a few years back. Um, 
Gesuno Kiwami Otome, right? They, they were a sort of, you can, it's clear that somewhere in their background, they listened to a lot of 90s post-hardcore and like um, math rock and things like that. Mm. But it got filtered through this J-pop filter. And so it just, to me, it just comes out sounding like, oh, it's just, it's, it's J-pop, but sometimes the rhythm does funny things, you know? Um, I'm not, I'm not criticizing them for doing that. It's fine. You know, hey, make J-pop more interesting. Why don't you? But yeah. I, I'm not interested. That's all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, I see. So in, in it's your, not for me. It's fine. In your book, you write extensively about uh, the difference between the Koenji scene mm. and the Shimokitazawa scene. Well, I mentioned that because that's something that was close to me, and it was um, it's an, as an example of the way that two um, superficially very similar things could somehow have completely different audiences. Mm. So um, how are they similar? Well, I mean, the kinds of, I think the musical influences that they're taking stuff from are often quite similar. Um, um, you know, it's sort of but ni- 90s see- alternative music is uh, and punk as a sort of bass, I guess, sort of 80s yeah. UK indie rock. Um, you'll find that a lot of the people are listening to a lot of the same sort of music from music history. But... Um, but the way the scene uh, manifests, it's way different. Well, I mean, it's just that there's different... You'll see different people at each. And obviously when I wrote the book, it was a few years ago yeah. now, and some of the things in it are, are out of date now. Like, nobody has MySpace pages anymore. Mm. I mean, even when I was writing the book, it would be like the ghost of a MySpace might be kind yeah. of hanging around. But I think somewhere. MySpace uh, sticks longer in Japan than it did in the West. Uh, maybe I don't know. It's definitely long gone now, though. Um, the uh, and like it, at the time, like all the hip young bands were kind of on Tumblr, but even like Tumblr has kind of died now, hasn't it? It's died when uh, Yahoo bought it. Ah, well, that's the moment go. it died. Right. That was the jumping the shark moment. <laughs> because then they started uh, censoring uh, the platform, and that's when everybody left. Everyone, yeah, I remember when they, the porn ban came down. The porn like, ban, and it's not about that everybody was there watching porn and now the porn was no. gone so nobody used it anymore, but it's sort of the place where anything goes and the place where people could do whatever they want mm. and once a big corporation buys that place and then tells you, well, some of the shit is now banned, mm. people are like, well, maybe this is not my platform anymore. Mm. It's, not, it's not the space it used to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's a, we're we're kind of at the point now where um, hardly any bands even have websites anymore. You know, it might be on the return. I think. Well, not it, in it, Japan. It would be nice if it was, but because um, it's really difficult for me to find when bands are playing shows now. Oh, you yeah, have to follow hard. them all on Twitter, and they obviously Twitter doesn't organize information in a. Um, in such a convenient way for something like looking at a band's gig schedule, right? No, so, no it doesn't. Um, yeah, that, that's... Uh, yeah, and that's, a, that's the thing indeed. Uh, it used to be way easier to see when a band was playing. Mm. But you have to check it out yourself. Mm. That, that, well, you still have to do that in a, in a sense, I think. But um, what, what, one thing I, was, uh, I really wanted to ask you about is so... Um, and that's why, why it took so much time um, asking you about how uh, the scene 
sort of is set up in Tokyo. Mm. And um, the, the, it's, it has to do with uh, the layers and it has to do with weird. Right. And um, it has to do with uh, the Japanese culture. So these are all a bunch of influences mm. that are going on. And uh, they produce music. Mm. And this music tends to be quite different uh, than uh, Western music. and Or different across some dimensions than, than uh, the music that I hear in Europe. And I was wondering, why is this different? Right, I mean, so maybe sort of drawing on one of those threads from before is that, you know, just the size of Tokyo allows things to be weirder, right? The, the weirdness, perhaps, it's not so much a function of Japanese society as it is a function of, like, this um, very rare example of this enormous um, sort of uh, condensed humanity all in mm. this one place and so very tightly packed into this one place and that 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 enables weirdness um you know in the same way that sort of um the, uh, in the same way that the the internet it, by bringing everybody in the world together it kind of um it allows the weirdest things to flourish in their own little communities a city the size of tokyo does that you know so it kind of removes the gatekeepers. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, or I mean, like the the communities become their own gatekeepers, don't they? I mean, yeah, that's uh, that's part of the nature of like subcultures, isn't it? That it's not easy to enter necessarily. There's some kind of um, they have their own rules, their own sort of internal um, what would you call it, their own internal etiquette or something, and that if you want to participate in that community, then you kind of have to be, uh, you have to learn those rules. So I, I think that the gatekeepers are there, but the gatekeepers are sort of internally policed. Um, but the other, th so another thing, um, right, we've, so you've got this sort of, fragmented nature of the city the, the idea that everybody in Tokyo is living in their own personal little Tokyo yeah. that they're all layered on top of each other but they don't really interact with each other very much and you have a music scene like that it means that if you want if you're making a certain kind of music then Tokyo becomes like a rabbit hole that you fall down you're going to be pushed to do the most extreme version of that kind of music perhaps you know yeah rather than if you're in a smaller town where there's you know, there's a couple of punk bands, maybe, then there's some people making more pop music, some people doing some acoustic things, somebody who's got a bit more of a jazz influence, someone with more of a metal influence. All those bands have to play together. They all have to make a performance that sort of, that can appeal outside their own personal area of interest mm. because you're trying to, you know, because you're in a community with people doing a lot of different things. Um, come to Tokyo, you don't have to do that anymore. You can just appeal only to people who like that one thing. And yeah, sometimes it means that, for example, it can mean that your punk band from Akita Prefecture is better than a band doing the same thing in Tokyo because yeah. they, they know how to appeal outside their... They're more exposed. Yeah, perhaps. Mm. 
But on the other hand, it means that there's things happening in Tokyo that just don't happen in other places. That because they go further. They, go, they take it much further. Mm -hmm. And they can get away with taking it further because there's people there who understand the vocabulary, you know, the musical vocabulary, not just, you know, to for speaking, but they have the, the building blocks upon which that they can understand this thing that you've built several layers above that. Yeah. Um, so I think there's an element of that as well. Do you think that uh, that sort of uh, down the rabbit hole uh, kind of uh, de development only appeals to the in crowd? I mean... So if you're that band, can you play outside of Tokyo? I've... Uh, I remember... Um, I was in a record store. I was talking to somebody in a record store in uh, a kind of smaller city, sort of somewhere outside Tokyo, and we were just chatting about, okay, what bands do we both know? Do we have any mutual friends? That kind of thing. And um, I showed him there was a, a compilation album I was working on around that time, and I showed him like the track listing. These are the bands I'm working with at the moment. And he spotted one of the bands, he recognized them. And he said to me, like, ah, Sugoi, Tokyo Poine. Like, he's like, that's a very Tokyo-ish band. And I thought, what do you mean? And th there was an element of his, what he was saying there, that he was sort of, oh yeah, they do that kind of thing in Tokyo, but that shit won't fly here. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it was, they were doing a sort of shellac kind of um, slint fugazi kind of thing, you know? It's like, it was punk, but it was punk with messed up rhythms and it was all very um, mathematically precise mm. what they were doing. And I was like, all right, this is something that's going to be, yeah, it's going to leave the audience cold, perhaps, yeah. you know? That's something that I'm worried about as a creator, mm. because um, the more time I invest in uh, educating myself in music and finding new things that keep exciting me, mm. and uh, you go down sort of the 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 rabbit hole that might end up in snobism, right. and um, I'm probably past that point already, <laughs> and uh, then I wonder like. Do I want to make music only for other music snobs? And no, there are just not not enough of them, and I'm not so interested in uh, impressing self-declared music snobs. I don't mm. care if you like it. So no. So will that be a problem for me down the line? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two things there. One, I don't think snobbery is necessarily a bad thing. Or at least I think that snobbery has a sort has a function. It, it it has a sort of gatekeeping function, and it's which can obviously be an extremely, you know, exclusionary and unpleasant mm. thing socially. Um, but on the other hand, if you look at the sort of power dynamics within pop culture, most of that power is with this kind of homogenizing sort of universal hey this is the music everybody listens to this is what you should all this is designed to appeal to all of you so that that's where all the money and power mm. is if you're into something weird you've got to protect that and you've got to protect that community you don't let just anybody kind of go <laughs> into that yeah. it's uh and uh so i can understand where 
snobbery comes from. It's a way of like preventing your scene getting kind of co-opted and homogenized. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like as an artist, what do you do? Um, I mean, I get this issue with my writing. It's like when I first started writing about music in Japan, a lot of people were so, oh yeah, finally you're saying what we, you know, which I, I thought, but I hadn't found the words for. Oh, this is so great. The deeper I get into it, the more people are just like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> um, I'm not interested in talking about that stuff anymore. I've found these really like niche things that I'm interested in. You know, I start making these grand sweeping statements like, you know, the existence of the city is the precursor to the existence of the internet. And this is the world that we all live in. People go, what? <laughs> Sound like an asshole, you know? That's um, soon to be a high, high I guess. <laughs> the, um, I, what, the way I've always seen it um, is that with any kind of art, you're at the one end, there's masturbation, and at the other end, there's prostitution. And somewhere in the middle, there's like really good sex that pleases both parties. <laughs> and <laughs> that you're some balance between those two is sort of. I don't know, you can make really great masturbation that's just really fun to watch, probably. I don't know, Taino Keiji or something. <laughs> I don't know. I but, um, and really great prostitution that, you know, some like, the, the best pop music, I'm not denying that the best pop music is really great music, but it's music that's designed to appeal to the audience. It's not necessarily got the, um, <laughs> any... Well, the, there's the a difference artists, between um, the best old pop music and the best new pop music because the best old pop music just worked in some way. Like if you, I'm not a fan, but if you uh, uh, check out the Beatles, it's mm -hmm. very uh, diverse music. Well, if you now check out uh, the the best pop music, it's uh, very homogenized. Mm. It's very formulated, and uh, that's something that changed. And I think it's just because of rinse and repeat too much. If you, you have a formula, which is pop music, and you do that for 50 years, and you keep doing it with a, with a whole bunch of people, and you keep making pop music, uh, at some point you arrived at the, um, the sort of pinnacle of the formula. And that's sort of that, 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 the, uh, a comparable moment in time, I think, to where we are with pop music might be. Um, when Bach uh, um, made uh, basically the, the the end of the Baroque music just because he perfected the art and there was nowhere to go in Baroque music except go out of Baroque music into polyphony and mm. into the Romantic area. But don't you think that, I mean, if you listen to what pop music sounded like back in the 50s and like the rock and roll era, yeah. That was extremely formulaic. And you mentioned the Beatles, but partly part of what makes the Beatles such a, an important band was that they, they made stuff that wouldn't have been recognized as pop music by people at the time or people yeah. of the previous era. Yeah. That they kind, of, they kind of exploded it out of that. And that's where people started saying rock for the first time, really. It was yeah. like trying to find a way of describing like what not just the Beatles, but other bands of that era were doing. Um, like, you've got this period where pop is extremely formulaic in the 1950s. Then in the late 60s and 70s, 
pop goes crazy. And then maybe from the 80s through to nowadays, it's been sort of coalescing yeah. again around a Definitely maybe some kind of 80s. ideal pop song. There was still a lot of crazy stuff going on in the 80s as well, but... Um, Which we've forgotten about. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think the, the stuff that we really remember tends to be the the outliers more than the stuff that was necessarily the most popular at the time, isn't mm. it? I mean, if you look at who the most popular acts mm. of the 60s were, there's a lot of acts in that the people like Engelbert Humperdinck were like the kind of biggest some of the biggest hits of the of the 60s in the UK or you had they, it was just like sentimental songs by um, sort of TV personalities and comedians mm. like if you um, you know it, it was sort of schlager you know that kind yeah, of yeah. and nobody remembers schlager not really I think that might happen with the uh, from the music from the last 10 years like the sensitive boy with the guitar mm-hmm. or the sensitive girl with the piano right. like, there's so many of them <laughs> and it's just like yeah yeah that was a thing and maybe the weirdest ones will get remembered like James Blake right you know yeah I mean I, mean, I think you know, people are probably going to remember say like Joanna Newsom in years years to come right mm. Big selling artist, but not a huge, huge selling artist. I mean, not compared to your Katy Perry or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But maybe in years to come, she's going to be kind of remembered better than a lot of people who are selling way more than her. Yeah. Um, Florence and the Machine. I mean, I don't pay enough attention to, yeah. <laughs> to kind of popular stuff. But, so, it's well, one of the interesting things. Uh, about this conversation we keep coming back to formulate it mm. and um, be, uh, d- definitely when you uh, describe something about mainstream that you might not appreciate it's always uh, some uh, something to do with it being overly formulated and when we're talking about interesting things in the underground it sort of it breaks out of that it doesn't it doesn't um, Adhere to it in a in a pathological way. Well, yeah, it's something that, that I think we have to be careful of as well, though. That we're not just we we're using the word oh, it's formulaic as like a criticism, mm. and that we're maybe there's a danger there that we're that that's not really what we like about it. So when I'm criticizing idol music, I say, well, mm. it just hits this formula. It's not. I don't hate it because it's formulaic. I hate it because I don't like that particular formula. Mm. You know? Probably a lot of the music I like has its own formulas. And I'm just just happy with those formulas. I like them. They comfort me. They make me feel sort of... They make me feel good. They send a bit of electricity through my my body. And so, I mean, the, the formula isn't necessarily not there so much. Yeah, you can but kind of, of course you want things that are gonna feel fresh to you, though. Of course. So yeah. So basically, what you're saying is, um, a formula is like a recipe, and you're not saying <laughs> I don't like this book because, or, or I don't like this food because it's cooked from a recipe, because all, all food is basically a recipe. 
And uh, so, so you're you're saying I don't like this recipe. It's not that I don't like recipes. Yeah. And but maybe that's it. So some music has has this recipe that sends something to your body. Uh, do you have any idea what that is? But you can definitely get tired of something, though, can't you? Yes, yeah, um, for sure. I mean, don't eat. You don't want to eat curry rice every day, but no. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, but there, there are certain things that I, I think I look for personally. Yeah, like, I, I mean, when I'm trying to describe the music I like, what I'll often say is I like music that's not punk, but it's kind of near punk. Punk itself, I find too formulaic. I, you yeah, know, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I don't like the formula of punk. It's very, it's too straightforward for me. Yeah. But I love a lot of the music that, I, I, that's kind of in that sphere. I think that. I think punk's kind of necessary as a sort of, um, how would you describe it? it it's, um, it positioned itself as like destructive music, right? Music yeah. as a, a form of like cleansing destruction. I'm not sure it always entirely was that, but um, it was breaking things down in some way, you know? Um, I, I mean, I, I love a lot of progressive rock. I, I'm definitely not of the... Um, of the mind that says oh, punk rock is this great thing because it destroyed the sort of bloated rubbish of symphonic of prog, music. you know. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's some great prog rock. <laughs> I have no problems with a lot of progressive rock. But, um, you know, I, and a lot of other things around that time, like Steely Dan, I think Steely Dan are a great brand, band, you know, yeah, but the punks actually, hated them. Yeah, um, they're the most anti-punk you can get. Yeah, but um, <laughs> the... But I, I do think that, you know, sending this, like, bomb into the middle of rock music and just, like, this idea of shattering it into loads of broken pieces is great. But then, what are you going to do after that? Well, you have to build something up, don't you? Mm. And what can you build it from when you've just got broken pieces? And that's sort of what post-punk does, I think, is that it builds something out of the broken pieces of what sort of punk has messed up so you can there's still this very close relationship with with punk yeah it's this sort of and it's and they're reconstructing things they're not reconstructing them necessarily the way they were before they're mm. reconstructing them in different ways or like in different combinations which i think gives it this sort of I'm not saying it's fresh because it's from broken parts of something old, you know. Mm. I, it's not completely original, but I, you know, who cares? Um, well, what is it, completely original? Yeah, I know. Once you start demanding that of your art, then you're going to end up. There, there's always some some snob who go who goes, well, actually, in yeah. 1957, somebody did that. Yes. You know. <laughs> so but, uh, there's also. <laughs> Uh, my guitar teacher, Erik van Eysen, he once said, uh, we did an interview for uh, uh, our high school graduation with him about the history of pop music. And uh, we asked him about this subject and he said uh, something I've, I find very interesting. He said, if something is entirely new altogether, you wouldn't recognize it as it being something. <laughs> so it, it's it, when you recognize something as it's new punk or it's new rock. It, it's enough like punk to recognize it as punk. And mm. It's enough new to recognize it as new punk. 
Right. So there's a tension between the familiar and the unexpected, right? Yeah. And that, that I, I think a lot of um, what's interesting comes from that. Uh, a lot of what I find interesting comes from that tension. You know, like the events that I organise, we call them tension, you know. Yeah. But, uh, well, not this one, but... <laughs> but, um, yeah, like a lot of... I, I like that word and I like... Because it describes a lot of what I'm interested in in music. Um, not Like noise rock is another phrase that I kind of tend to use fairly freely and loosely. But mm. for me, what that means is, okay, rock. Rock is a word of that describes something familiar. Yeah. Everybody knows or at least thinks they know what rock music for is. For me, it's guitar with distortion. It's right. Great. Well, I mean, you don't need distortion to be rock, but if you're doing a noise rock, yeah. then you are, you're distorting it in some yeah. way, aren't you? Um, it, not necessarily using sonic distortion through the amplifier, but you could be, um, you could be creating a different kind of noise, more a sort of <laughs> a philosophical noise, like messing up the rhythm or something or mm. just um or s stripping away some aspects or use it i don't know anyway like you can it it means fucking with rock in some way right mm. yeah yeah and so but you, you've still got this something familiar but at the same time you've got this it's doing it wrong or it's doing it in some unexpected or disconcerting way it goes back to the weirdness again you know the kind of the unheimlichkeit of um making some kind of interesting art. Mm. So, I, yeah, I, I think that's... Maybe that's an, uh, goes back to one of the reasons why I, I threw the word weird in there. I, I, I feel a bit embarrassed for having used having that word said, said because that, of the whole cliché of yes, like, weird Japan. But that's, but, um, that's why I asked you about it, because in one way it's a cliché and everybody wants to say weird, and then when you encounter weird, it's, it's interesting to investigate, like, mm. why is it there? Because... Mm. Um, the what your first assumption could be it's there because I adhere to the cliche, and when you investigate that, it turns out not to be true. So then, why is it there? Where, where and it might be there for the reason that the cliche also exists. Mm. So it might be something underneath, and I think uh, we tapped into that quite well mm. and quite extensively already. So it's also that the word weird pop, right? That's kind of my imprecise English translation of what Japanese people call hentai pop. Uh -huh. And so, you know, hentai sort of means perverted mm. or something. It's often used in a sexual context yeah. in like sort of anime or manga world. Yeah. Ugh, hentai, right? But like... Like not, being on a porn site. Right, but not <laughs> it's not necessarily used in that way. Hentai pop means perverted pop, twisted pop. Yeah. Right? So yeah. weird pop is just like the just seemed like the easiest translation of that phrase, you know, which is a phrase that It, it, it is. Around. Japanese words and English words are not one-on-one -on -one translatable because mm -hmm. um, you're not just translating the word, you're translating the culture. Mm. So it means something in one... Just like swear words are not uh, mm. translatable one-on-one. -on -one. Like, um, yeah. shit is a swear word in English, but uh, nobody says it in Dutch. No. Like the literal Dutch equivalent. So if you want to find uh, the equivalent swear word of sw uh, shit in Dutch, it's definitely not poop, which is the literal translation. Maybe it's scheit, but it's it's not a one-on-one -on -one thing. Mm. So, so yeah, you, you're going to get some distortions. So um, we you, just a moment ago you mentioned um, um, the, the unexpected mm. uh, to be a sort of... 
the thing that uh, stimulates uh, a listener in listening to new music or something that that's exciting. And I was thinking about the um, the uh, community that uh, tries to protect itself through um, sort of mm. um, not uh, accepting too much outsiders and sort of being in crowd. So those, yeah. those two seem to be at odds a little bit. Yeah, they are. And, I, and you can see the way that in some music scenes that like like the mod scene in Tokyo, I mentioned that in my book, the mod scene is just like this irrelevant sort of museum piece, really. it's I mean, it's fine for the kids who are into it. It's just they like dressing up in 60s clothes and yeah. pretending they're strolling down Carnaby Street with their scooters and stuff like that. But musically, there's no ideas in it that have happened after about 1968. Worldwide, um, the blues scene is like that. Right. But the jazz scene isn't. So the jazz you know, scene isn't. No. I mean, I guess probably there are sub scenes within jazz that yeah, are. Yeah. But, um, it only play bebop. Right. But so, uh, how welcoming you are is is a question, isn't it? Um, I I think that scenes should probably be more welcoming than they are. To be honest. Do you think uh, um, scenes are sort of? Um, something that uh, solidify about around uh, a sort of a subgenre that has established itself and then when a new when new things come the scene changes like well a lot of scenes in Tokyo don't really they they just, they gather around groups of friends and they sort of expand outwards a little bit from that so you'll actually find quite a lot of different sorts of music maybe thrown in together mm, that's um, interesting that people don't always the problem is that they're, they're all still kind of isolated, so it never really grows into anything much bigger. And it's difficult to advertise outside of that group as well, because you don't know how to describe it. Mm. Um, but yeah, sometimes... I, I don't think it's always strictly around a genre. And in fact, increasingly, young people don't really get genre. So yeah. I, I don't know how much outside of just very sort of uh, you know scenes with really strong cultures like punk yeah and you know sort of the mods and the garage scene yeah but those scenes are really still as well yeah i mean the punk scene though i think can be very they can be quite open-minded and welcoming to bands doing stuff that's a bit different from you know sonically from them yeah they'll they'll let you in as long as as long as you're a fun guy to hang around with, then yeah, they'll, like, they'll let do, you in. Do you hold all the lines between punk and reggae? Yeah. And there's a, <laughs> you often find that punks are kind of... They, they've got like people playing stuff with acoustic guitars and stuff as well. Um, there's, a, there's a folk tradition in Japan that has very... That's, that's very friendly with certain elements of the punk scene. Mm. Um, you know, like in the late 60s, early 70s, the guys who were, um, you know, the, the old student radicals and people from that scene just uh, singing songs with acoustic guitars in their little rooms like this, you know. Mm. And um, there's a sort of songwriting tradition that comes out of that that I think ended up finding a kind of alliance with punk when it came, there's a sort of similar um, ethos to it, you know. Yeah. Um, 
so they, perhaps, I mean, like one thing that I was involved in recently that I found really fascinating, right, was um, in Koenji where I live, there was a big protest march. Okay. Um, sort of anti-gentrification thing. There's some plans to build a, uh, a road through the middle of town and oh. people are sort of, oh, we've got to stop this, you know. Yeah. I mean, if it's stopped, it's going to be stopped in the courts and in the city office and all of that. Yeah. But it's not on the streets. But we went out into the streets anyway, you know. And um, the Shiroto Noran people, the, um, uh, the sort, of, this sort of vaguely anarchist collective around uh we're sort of very active in Koenji and in the local community um got a couple of trucks mm. put a band put bands on one truck and djs on another drove them around sort of the neighborhood maybe a couple of hundred people um sort of marching along kind of behind the the vans and things had like punk bands playing like djs like there was this one DJ, he was, um, I think he was a French guy, I'm not sure, I may be wrong there, but he, um, um, it was his first time ever DJing, didn't really know kind of what he was doing, and he was just blasting the song um, Higher State of Consciousness by Josh Wink, just over and over mm. again, it's like, you know, 90s sort of rave classic. <laughs> it's one of the best things that I've seen. There was, and so there was a lot of different kinds of stuff going on, loads of different kinds of people there, definitely not strictly one genre of music fan, but they were all from the local community. They were like the local weirdos and things, but also <laughs> just some regular people, shopkeepers or whatever, who wanted to support the town. Maybe not so much of them on the march. But, mm. uh, was it, it was... shut down, the event? No. It wasn't shut down? It wasn't shut down. It was, I mean, they got permission beforehand. Oh, so, really? Um, That's cool. Anarchists getting permission. Yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, otherwise it would have been shut down within seconds of them even starting speaking, you know? Yeah. Um, I, there was a similar thing last year and slightly more people and way more cops. This year around, still a lot of cops, but it was much more, it was much more of a light touch this time around. Mm. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, Like, last year, somebody got arrested because he uh, kind of... He was in one of the bands and he, like, jumped off the truck and stole a policeman's hat. Mm. Um, that was the extent of the uh, the civil disobedience, you know. Okay. Or the the uncivil disobedience, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, now you have to plead guilty. Yeah, I did steal his hat. <laughs> no, no they, 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 he had a good lawyer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wasn't charged with anything. They just let him go. Okay. Mm. Oh, Makes sense. He gave the hat back after all. <laughs> he didn't like piss in the hat or anything. You know? that's, in the UK, that's a thing uh, the bobbies had to do when a woman was pregnant. They had to use their helmets and let women urinate in it. Really? Yeah, that's something I learned in high school no. during English, of course. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So one of the things uh, you said um, just just about rounding up now but mm. uh, one of the things um, you said is uh, youngsters don't really uh, are not really as concerned with musical genre anymore no but on the other hand youngsters seem still very uh, pre-concerned with um, how do you say it clothing genre fashion yes 
the yeah. way they dress. So people, maybe you know, you can uh, you can talk to anybody about uh, a punk band and a reggae band and a, uh, I don't know Led Zeppelin and mm. uh, something super mainstream, but um, they will uh, separate into groups wearing certain fashion. Mm. I mean, yeah, I don't think it's just about fashion though. I think what I, I hate saying young people because it just emphasizes how I'm not a young person anymore. But what young people are very good at is um, forming very quick judgments of um, of people based on a variety of different factors. You know, based on a synthesis of a variety of factors. Um, that, you know, and fashion might be part of that, music might be part of that. They, they can just look at somebody and very, very quickly know, is this my kind of person or not? And that's, I think, increasingly how they treat music. So, um, you'll... F it's, and it's, so it's more difficult to, to group stuff by tribe by just looking at it from the outside, but if you're on the inside, you kind of know what's in and what's out. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm getting into like market research and things here, you know, the, yeah. because nowadays market researchers are really, really interested in like, how, how do we communicate with Generation Z, you know? Yeah. So they've been doing a lot of research into it and, um, the main thing that seems to have come out of that is that um, Generation Z, that so we're talking now people kind of 25 and under. Yeah. But obviously these things are never very, uh, are never that sort of strict. Yeah. So I think it would probably be true for a lot of people sort of older than that. It's just going to be a sliding scale. They, they just have very, very finely honed bullshit detectors and they... Um, they can kind of, they're very sophisticated at making these sort of judgments based on in t things that might seem intangible to to somebody older, somebody outside their group. But uh, I mean, we all do it to a certain extent. Use a bullshit detector. Yeah, to, you... To recognize the in crowd. Yeah, because like somebody comes along and they're doing all the punk things completely right, but then you look at them and you're like, yeah, you're, it's too, too right. You're yeah, doing yeah. it too correctly. Somebody comes along and they're doing something that's on the face of it really pop and you're like, that is punk as fuck, you know? Yeah. You sort of, you, you read you it. You smell it, you smell yeah. it. You yeah, smell yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And so I think there's, yeah, there's a, increasingly it's more along those lines maybe than the, the musical genres are losing their, and unless it's a very, very strictly defined genre with its own very particular sort of fan base, that's, it's not the main thing that people are um, um, coming to music on the basis of. Uh, I mean, it, it, there's all kinds so, of ways as well in which just this is a function of uh, just like jet homogenization as well though, isn't it? Yeah. filters through to all elements of society and you have to have a much more finely tuned radar to pick out what feels real from what doesn't. Yeah, so I'm if, I, if I try to sort of summarize what we've been talking about in a, in a way that, that makes sense, mm. um, 
I sort of I recognize that we that we established that Tokyo is a, a very uh, layered city with very many local communities mm. and um, that um, organization by musical genre doesn't have its appeal anymore that it used to have and instead uh, people tend to organize around social groups and groups of friends and um, so, and that seemed to be the main uh, driving force behind the scene. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that, of course, scenes do grow up. Something will come along, oh, this is cool. Mm. I'm into this for a while. Yeah. But that's not like the core of their identity. No. Or anything. Um, it, it means if you're trying to sell a certain kind of music, it's difficult, of course. Yeah. But... From, from a marketing <laughs> perspective, this sucks. Because yeah. what it means is you have to have social proofing before you can start doing anything. Mm. And uh, that sucks. On the other hand, for any creator, it's good news. Because if you're real, just real in... If you are what you are, or if... So that means if you just do what you are, you are what you say you are, and people will recognize that. The bullshit detector won't go off because you're yeah. real in the sense that you do what you do. Yeah, but I mean, obviously on its own that's not enough, is it? There's like, the world is full of people who are totally real and who <laughs> don't sell shit. They don't kind of have anybody come to their shows because, you know, they just never found the right, I don't know, they just never found the right alchemy. Yeah. Um, I, and the, the part of the problem is that everybody now in music is a salesman because everybody is like in charge of managing their own brand, you know. Yeah. Um, and, that, and why is that that's a problem? Well, it's it's a lot of work that musicians have to do that mm. in the past they wouldn't have had to do. Yeah. And like it forces you to think of yourself as a commodity, which isn't which I think gets in the way sometimes of um, of what you want to do just as an artist because yeah. you're, you're always thinking is this the right thing for me to be doing right now mm. yeah i find it really hard because if i do something under my own name it's just yeah who, who am i and then i don't know then everything all your existential doubts are carried with you but if i do something for a band of mine then it's like yeah i know what this band is because it's me and this buddy and we're making mm. this sort of music and we're usually playing this sort of venue this sort of venue is unsuited for us so i know exactly what the band is because mm. the band is just an abstraction of parts of who we are and we yeah. both have personality parts that are not into that band yeah like your relationship with your partner for example yeah. that's but not i don't i don't think that's necessarily a barrier to kind of authenticity though i mean somebody like um like Eves Tumor or something, he, sort of electronic artist, everything that he does is very sort of uh, kind of done through layers of uh, artifice. Mm. Doesn't really sort of give out much in the way of personal um, information in interviews, but I think people watching it maybe identify it still as something real. Yeah. Um, I don't think people consider David Bowie to be any less real for his constant uh, sort of use of artifice. Mm. But um, admittedly, he built his um, he built his identity in a very, very different era and under very different circumstances, though. So, yeah, good example. Mm. I don't know what to make of him. <laughs> he could be a whole podcast on his own. <laughs> 
But um, so concluding, uh, the, one of the things uh, Tokyo does uh, for the creative world is it pushes people down uh, uh, the rabbit hole of a culture. And, uh, it's a great place to explore an idea to its extreme, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be a good final word on Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> Ian well. F. Martin, thank you for coming. No. Oh. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah.